0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Spittoon podcast. During the pandemic, we are not really doing events, and so uh, here's another podcast so you can get some of that Spittoon goodness. Uh, and be safely socially distant from the people you would not like to be socially distant from. Well, whatever. It is again me, Nathan. I. It's been a while since the first one. Uh, This time we have a mix of fiction and poetry. We have poetry from Ben Thompson, fiction from Rianca Mohan, and i uh contributed a story first up we'll have poetry it's always good to start with a bit of poetry ben thompson is uh he's kind of been a longer time friend of spittoon as i understand he wrote two poems uh here uh, they're both from china one is entitled joanna it was written in Beijing around 2009, and the location was Xiangshan, the Fragrant Hills. And he also wrote Water Village. It's a translation or a virgin version of... Is that... Jiangcheng. My Chinese is not real great. Uh, but it's a... It's very well known by Chinese people, it's by Su Shi, or Su Dongpo, uh, and they, and Chinese listeners will probably complain about this version, he says, but he likes it and he thinks it works. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the things about translation. Uh, there's a way, it's like if you talk to Muslims about translations of the Quran, they're more like interpretations rather than really a translation. Um, there's a way in which that perspective is really very good because a translation is an interpretation because you have to very carefully make a choice about what is meant by the original text. So an ambiguity in the original text may not make it over. So in a way, uh, this water village, uh, translation is a, is a version of the classical Chinese poem. So I will now turn things over to Ben Thompson.
1: Joanna. There were yellow flowers on the mountain and peach blossom, speckled pink, presided over by the lofty trunks of a few arboreal antiques. You, beautiful when angry, are always angry, therefore always beautiful. You sat on the top of a wall like a cat, with your little red shoes pulled tight against your hips, toes towards me as if to say, Look, my feet are still bound. Water Village For ten empty, aching years, out of sight, not out of mind, you've slept beyond the realm of care, while, left alone, I've become strange, with dusty skin and white hair, Last night in dreams I seemed to see, as in your youth, your clear brown eyes. You did not speak, but from your tears I knew that, sleeping in that place beyond the moon, you dream of me.
0: All right, now it's time to move on for some fiction. And so, Rianca has given us... Oh, what did she give us? Let me pull that up. Uh, Rianca Mohan, uh, lives in Beijing. Um, she has written, she has done a variety of stories. Probably one of my favorites is one of the, is a story in which it, it she's read it, I think, a couple of times at Spittoon Fiction Nights. It's where, you know, in the end, it comes back around to kind of reaffirming normal life, that it's, it's not like, you know, so I'll, I'll let her decide if she would like to share that one on the, on the podcast. But, uh, she, she has a, quite the way of, of, uh, like putting details into the interior lives of the people she's writing about and the, the character's. So here is her story, God and Lucifer. I will turn it over to Rianca.
2: Hi, my name's Rianca. I wrote this short story a long, long time ago and I came across it recently when looking for fiction for this podcast. At the time that I wrote it, I just read a version of the story of Satan's fall from grace and I was sort of intrigued by this lone angel who questions God's plan and who wonders at us humans, our creation and our general worthiness as also, I guess, teen angsting over the meaning of life, if there's a God, if he exists, why he endures evil, that sort of thing. And I wrote this as a sort of crude explanation to myself as to why this power stays aloof. I choose it today because for reasons unknown, I decided to make the Christian God and his disciple Chinese, so it sort of feels somewhat relevant from a standpoint of setting. I grew up in the Middle East, but I think by that point I'd seen enough Kung Fu movies to feel a tea shop in China is where masters meet to impart wisdom using as few words as possible. Also, given our current situation where I'm again confused, this compact story reminds me to be patient and have faith. The two men specifically being from Zhou is a detail I added recently because I understand in Mandarin the word means the cosmos. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. God and Lucifer the two men from ujo sit across from each other in the tea shop ignoring its bustle a pot simmers on the table between them its steam rising like a shroud the younger of the two his fierce brows furrowed looks out the window at the flowing river occasionally lifting his cup in his slender palms to sip tea from time to time he steals a glance at his companion the older man sits engrossed in reading a newspaper His long white hair, neatly caught in a ponytail behind him, sparkles like sunlight upon water. The young man cannot resist a smile. His master's hair, with the luster of mutton-fat jade, looks too healthy to belong to an old man, and a keen eye would have noticed the incongruence. Yet, the younger man observes to himself, the mortal and middling occupants of the café pay no heed. He frowns as he takes them in the plodding people with their vacuous chatter and their shabby lives, he returns to look at his companion. He cannot comprehend his calm in their midst when he himself can only perceive their futility. What is to be done? He breaks the silence. Without looking up from the paper, the older man says, What is, is. You're suggesting again that we do nothing. I've never suggested that. Would you say all this is nothing? The younger man sighs, looks out at the river again. The first of the fishing boats has arrived, and there's a sudden rush of activity along the bank, as people hurry to inspect the fish, haggle over prices, and get the best of the first haul. The fishermen swagger upon the deck, lording over the rest as they display their catch. The man in the café notices a boy of ten on the fringes, with his money held fast in his scrawny hand. The boy struggles to make his way past the adults, and several times gets pushed further back than where he began. Undaunted, he perseveres in seeking an opening, and finally he's rewarded. Creeping past tall legs, he reaches the front. However, the fishermen are now serving people at the other end of the long boat. Nevertheless, the boy smiles to himself, and wiping sweat from his brow, scrutinizes the fish before him. The younger man forgets his tea, absorbed in watching the boy. The boy carefully puts his money in his shirt pocket and with his little hands picks up a fish to examine it. Imitating the adults, he prods it to check for freshness. The fish looks very good and he shouts up at the fisherman, but his tiny voice is drowned out by the din. At this moment, a man standing behind him sees the fish in the boy's hands and grabs at it. He fails in his attempt as the boy holds fast with all his might. The man glares and the boy scowls back. The man opens his mouth, and his words, inaudible to the man watching the scene from the café, seems to affect the boy like a slap on the face. He recoils, drops the fish. The man, emboldened, continues to shout, and the crowd's attention is rapidly diverted to the confrontation. The fishermen are called over to intervene, and they walk across to the side of the boat where the boy stands. Their angry expressions and unwillingness to listen to his pleas make it evident to the man in the café what has occurred. "'Thief!' they are pointing and yelling. "'The boy shakes his head violently, "'reaching into his pocket for his money. "'But his earlier tussle with the man "'has caused more than the loss of the fish "'and his hands come up empty. "'Seeing this, the people around him grow angrier "'and the fishermen jump off the boat, "'their strong bodies towering over the shivering boy. "'He shields his eyes to hide his tears "'and shaking his head furiously, "'he looks around for escape. "'But he's hemmed in by a crowd of onlookers.' The people that had earlier surrounded the boat are gathered around the boy, unsympathetic to the last. The man in the cafe turns to his companion, frustration writ large upon his face. To them you bequeath this world. Silence from the older man meets his statement. He remains as he is, reading his newspaper, unperturbed. Outside, the boy is beaten by the fisherman. The younger man's face darkens. He can no longer see the boy, hidden from view by the circle around him. He turns his gaze instead to the boat, which lies unattended, gently swaying where it is roped, laden with temporarily forgotten fish. The motion of the boat is interrupted by a lone woman, who from the other side soundlessly sneaks on board. The man watches as she gathers fish into a bag with great speed. When it is full, she hands it to another woman standing by the side of the boat, who serves as lookout. She fills three more bags full of fish and manages to clamber off the boat with them just in time as the crowd, satisfied, turns back. The women slip past unnoticed and the man in the café soon loses sight of them. It is not long after that that the fishermen discover their loss. They commence shouting and wailing so loudly that it is heard even within the tea shop. A sudden hush descends as conversation is suspended. Some customers step out to see what the matter is. The younger man continues to stare out the window, but his mind is decidedly elsewhere. At length, he turns back to the table, realizes the pot no longer boils, and his tea is long cold. He raises his hand to order more. And from behind the newspaper that separates them, his master permits himself a smile.
0: (laughs) Okay, now it is time for my story this well I, I explain the story in the uh, story so I'll let you have that hello everyone uh, this time I've decided to contribute something to this podcast uh, this story is a joke that I trans uh, transferred into a story the you know, a joke can actually be a good writing prompt because all the story and the characters and the setting, um, the, the high point of tension and everything, that's all chosen so you can play with it and practice different elements of story writing because you can write a joke a few different ways, but okay, here here we go. The road-weary, travel-worn salesman dropped to his hotel bed with exhaustion. Pounding the pavement took its toll. He immediately fell asleep and didn't get up until the next morning. His sweaty business suit still sticking to his skin, he groggily dragged himself into the shower, turned on the hot water, and began to scrub wearily. Sometime later he realized that he was still wearing his suit and removed it. He restarted the process of showering, and, much to his satisfaction, achieved greater success. Because today was his day off, he decided to turn the shower into a bath, and as he got settled into the warm tub, he fell asleep once more until the faint chill of expired bath water suggested consciousness as an alternative plan for the day. He let the water out of the tub, toweled himself off, and shoveled himself into the natty, hotel-provided bathrobe hanging in the bathroom. As he shuffled back into the main part of the room, his stomach growled. Somehow or other, the bleary-eyed, bath-wrinkled salesman transferred himself into a fresh suit of clothes, pulled on his shoes, and, checking his pockets for his wallet and his keys, he tramped downstairs to see what was on offer in the diner by his hotel. The diner had a special that day on bacon and eggs and a daily offer of bottomless coffee. He remembered that, whatever uh, else, he had the coffee. When he got back to his hotel, he decided to explore the place a bit. He scaled the stairs, he prowled the hallways, he returned to the lobby. All the coffee he had at the dinner began to work on him. He didn't really want to go back up to his room, so he looked for a restroom somewhere around the lobby. He found one door down a side hallway. It didn't seem marked in any particular way that indicated it led to a restroom. But it was the most promising thing he found. He opened the badly sticking door, fumbled for the light switch, and he nearly fell down what he was surprised to discover were stairs. If the coffee hadn't woken him up, the basement was surprisingly not much help until he noticed the gorilla. There was only one thing worth noticing in the dingy basement. A large cage holding a mangy, flea-bitten gorilla, with a sign in front which read, Do not touch the gorilla. He looked at the sign, the gorilla looked at him. He looked at the gorilla, the gorilla glared at him. A little unnerved, he went back up the stairs, turned off the light, closed the door, and went back up to his room. Even so, something about that gorilla called out to him. He tried to heed the warning on the sign, but he could not turn his thoughts away from that gorilla there in the basement. He wasn't sure what about that ugly old ape that attracted him, and nothing he tried really ever pushed the gorilla out of his mind for more than a moment. He used the restroom, disposing of the reason he opened that door in the first place. Rather than dissuade him from going back, it removed the door as a mental obstacle. He tried to read, he tried to listen to the radio, he tried to think about his next sales campaign. He could think of only one thing. The gorilla. Telling himself he only meant to explore the kitschy art in the lobby, the salesman found himself downstairs once more, poised before the door to the basement. With the hazy hazy mind and clarity of purpose of a cigarette store customer ten days into his eleventh attempt to quit. He opened the door. He went to the gorilla like an ambivalent mosquito to a nudist colony. The Do Not Touch the Gorilla sign beckoned like an invitation to original sin, but innate caution of fleabag apes held him back. He looked at the gorilla, the gorilla looked at him. He held out his hand, the gorilla came fully awake He extended one trembling finger, and the gorilla quivered with god-knows-what primal emotion. He touched the gorilla. The gorilla's screams followed him up the basement stairs like hellhounds straight from the abyss, baying for the soul of the transgressor. Transgressor, sorry. He slammed the basement door shut. He bolted to his room. He listened at the hallway before he slammed his own door. Silence reigned in that upstairs hallway. With delirious relief, he closed his door and fell on his bed. Through the twangs of the mattress springs, he could hear a pounding coming up from below with horrible speed. Fearing the worst, he ran to his door and looked out into the hallway. He glanced toward the staircase, and he stared directly into the face. Of the gorilla! Its eyes were wide! Its blood was up! He slammed and bolted the door, barricading it with all the furniture he could shove up against the hotel room door, which, as the salesman sized up his situation, might as well have been a banner waiting for a football team to come charging through it. Throwing open his hotel window, he looked down into the alley behind his hotel. His only chance to escape was the dumpster below his window. The overflowing garbage bags would break his fall. Just as he landed in the squishy, smelly mass of garbage, He heard the gorilla burst through his barricaded hotel room door. He frantically swam through the rotting noodle soup, waste paper, and used restaurant supplies, and fought his way out of the dumpster. He looked up, the gorilla looked back down at him. He took off down the street running, hoping not to find himself at a dead end, as he heard the gorilla land in the dumpster behind him. How long could he evade the gorilla? Would the gorilla catch up in minutes or in mere moments?" Not even having a split second to look back, the salesman sprinted so fast that he aired the garbage smell out of his now-stained and tattered clothing. Anyhow, he hoped and prayed to the gorilla to have a sinus infection. Animals can often track by smell. Left, right, left, right, through a store, under a bridge, over a fence, through a park, over the canal. The salesman fled from the gorilla he could no longer see, but was sure was behind him. He rounded another corner, and there was something black and hairy. A man in a gorilla suit twirling a sign for a local store. Just as he began to laugh with insane relief, he spun around and saw the gorilla trundling toward him. The bus came that very instant, and he jumped on board. However, the gorilla was right behind him. He ran to the back of the bus and dove out of the rear door, just in time for the bus to drive away with the gorilla on board. Apologizing desperately, he kicked over a bicyclist and stole the bicycle. He pedaled as fast as he could away from the bus. For perhaps fifteen minutes, with speed born of adrenaline, terror, and despair, the salesman rode on. At last, out of energy, short on breath, and long on hopeless fatigue, he collapsed on the sidewalk at the end of a long street. The gorilla was waiting at the other end of the street. It took the salesman a couple of dry gasps to notice. He nearly choked. He rolled over on his stomach and began to, craw- to claw to the ground. Spitting cotton and with screaming frenzy could barely drag himself toward escape. The bicycle pinned him in place. The gorilla trundled down the street, moving in for the kill. Hearing the thudding coming up behind him, the salesman found some extra spurt of energy and flipped one leg out from under the gorilla. Still the gorilla came on. The other leg came out more easily. The gorilla was twenty feet away. He flipped over on his back, cockroach-like, in a futile attempt to fend off the gorilla. The gorilla stood over him. It made a deep, great ape shriek of victory. He put up his hands to block his face. The gorilla poked him in the shoulder. Tag, you're it! And the gorilla ran away. Well, this has been another episode of The Spittoon Podcast. The first episode was the only other episode. Right now, I will be turning toward recruiting for a third episode. So if you would like to contribute something for that, please hit me up on WeChat. You can find me in any of the spittoon groups. Um So we'd like to see how long we can get this going. It's great as lockdown is very gradually lifted we can start to go a little bit back to normal life it's going to be tricky but well you know what we've got to keep this uh this podcast going so that well we'll just see how that goes i hope to see you guys again in person at a Splatoon poetry fiction night until then on the podcast